Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. This is a show exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. Here I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the way that the outdoors has transformed them, their most vivid experiences, and how themes like risk, fear, flow, awe, and deeper connection show up in their relationship to the outdoors. Today I chat to Kyle Down. Kyle's a coach focused on emotional and spiritual health and wellness. He's a rock climber, adventurer, and seeker. And he's been on my radar for, for a while. Uh, and we happened to run into each other at uh, a conference in Vancouver called Spirit Plant Medicine Conference late last year. I wanted to record a conversation with Kyle to explore the relationship between adventure and the limits of oneself in the backcountry, but also exploring one's own consciousness in other settings including experiences where one ends up over their head, finding themselves in a tricky situation in the backcountry that's high consequence and requires them to perform at the very best just to make it back in one piece. And their relationship with these high consequence situations and flow. When we talk about flow, you can loosely define it as when you both feel and perform at your best, experiencing qualities of selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. In these states, it's clear that you're operating in a different realm of your mind. It's taking slightly different neural pathways, or you're leveraging existing pathways much more effectively than you ever have. We explore what exactly this is and and compare these peak states that we find ourselves in the mountains with also the ones that you enter in the likes of a plant medicine ceremony or so. We explore the way that the psychedelic experience serves as a tool for introspection and expansion, but also as a domain for adventure. The principles of risk, adventure, fear are all the same whether you're at your edge in the backcountry or throwing yourself into the abyss in the realm of a ceremony. Kyle introduces the idea of the Umwelt effect, which is putting a name to the phenomena that I believe I've talked about in a couple of previous episodes, referring to the fact that we apprehend about 150 bits of information per second compared to the full 10 to 11 million bits per second that our retina perceives. It's clear that in flow states, both in the context of a ceremony or in flow outdoors we're accessing and apprehending a wider slither of that information and we explore exactly what this is it's a really great conversation far-ranging a lot of fun here is Kyle Dow all right we're rolling I'm here with Kyle Dow Kyle welcome to Mount of Whispers hey Tim good to be here so I guess broad question to start things off. Um, if you had to describe how you first, an early memory or how you first fell in love with the outdoors, what comes to mind for that? The first thing that came up in this moment was driving into the Rocky Mountains for the first time. So I was freshly out of college and didn't really have a huge relationship with the outdoors. And I drove all the way across the country to go ski for six months. 
and my sister was living in Banff, Alberta. So I was going to go and couch surf with her. And I remember coming out of Calgary and seeing the Rocky Mountains grow before my eyes as I approached them. And there was just something to that. You know, I like felt it. I felt awe in my body, perhaps for the first time. And it was so, so magical. And so that six months became 15 years. And I'm no longer in the Rockies, but I am in Squamish. And so another beautiful mountain town. And so it's been a journey of exploring different mountainous places. And um, yeah, it's like a, like a love affair, you know? That sense of awe is something I could really resonate with. But I'm curious, what brought you first to the Rockies? Was there a calling to the mountains? It was just to go and ski. I skiing was my first athletic passion before I found team sports. So I had finally finished college and I was just like, I'm going like now's the time. And it was a, it was a weird impulse, like a pull, like one of those decisions that was made beyond me. I left my girlfriend at the time and it was just after my birthday and right before Christmas. And I was just like, I'm out. Mm -hmm. And it stayed and you're in the Rockies for six months before heading West. No, I stayed in the Rockies for a long time. I was in Banff for five years and then went to Revelstoke for a few years, then some time in Calgary and then back to Canmore, so the Rockies once again, and then finally out here to the coast about three years ago. And um, is it mostly resort or backcountry or what's your what's your favorite way to play uh, in, in the winter? Originally, I was a resort rat. So skiing was the motivation, and then I quickly found climbing. And climbing kind of took over my life as skiing took a back seat. Um, and I did get to a point where resort skiing was unfulfilling. I was skiing at Revelstoke, which is like one of the best resorts, ski resorts probably in the world in terms of terrain and accessibility. And it just became boring riding the chairlifts. And I think what I was longing for was the deep communion and connection that happens in the backcountry, getting out away from the mechanized systems and all the hordes of people and really deepening into that experience of connection with the natural world. Yeah, that, that resonates with me as well. What I, I love about skiing in the backcountry is um, probably the silence, number one, just the way that the snow insulates um, the um the sound around you, but also just that ability to, to connect. Um, I'm curious, how do you balance that ability to connect and the hard work that goes into backcountry with, I guess, the love of adrenaline of the downhill that's, that's on tap at the resort? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question because you don't get much mileage when you're out there in the backcountry. You know, as you're earning your turns and spending more time going up than you are going down. I think I got to a point with my skiing in my progression that I didn't need that, like those reps. I didn't like um, crave that adrenaline as much. But it's interesting because I get in the backcountry and like I'm looking at the hard line. It's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't ski the hard line because I'm putting myself at risk and therefore I'm putting my partners at risk. But honestly, I haven't spent that much time backcountry skiing. So it's still a new domain to me that I would like to continue to explore. Tell me about 
falling in love with climate, what was that like? That was something else, you know, as I think back uh, to 14 years ago and try to reframe it from the kind of reality tunnel that I have now and um, trying to make sense of why it's so meaningful to me. There's these moments of impetus in our life where something is really significant, but we don't know why it's significant until after we have the lived experience. You know, this could be with a relationship or any little synchronistic sign we get that's like, oh, I need to pay attention to this, but I don't know why. And then the whole thing emerges. And so there was this time when my friend was like, yeah, we're going climbing. Do you want to come? And I was like, like, what do you mean? Like, what? tell me about this climbing thing. As a kid, I always loved climbing on things, but I didn't know there were systems to actually go and climb a mountain, which seems so obvious now, but I was not exposed to that coming from a small town in Northern Ontario. You know, all I knew about was uh, like hockey, essentially, and team sports and like redneck drinking and, and snowmobiles. And so I went out and climbed for the first time and like just scurried up this thing on top rope. Like they were, they were both in awe of how uh, natural I was at it. And that was it. I was just in love with it. And it became um, a progressive passion as I got more into it over the years. And then really it was about exploration. So similarly, that relationship to backcountry skiing, I don't really like going to, a crag and just doing single pitch climbing. I like getting out in the mountains and having that experience of isolation and deep connection and really pushing the comfort zone as well, like pushing that edge, that limit. I think that's where a lot of magic occurs. I absolutely agree. And that, that's one of the the focuses of this, this project called Mountain Winters is exploring uh, the transformative potential or that, that, the, the space of transformation that comes from the outdoors. And and one of those crucial points is at the edge of your comfort zone, the, the transformation that comes from identifying that which scares you and, and pushing past that. Um, is there any examples or anecdotes or even just thoughts on how confronting fear or fear shows up in your journey with rock climate? Yeah, I'm, many roots come to mind. These moments of like trepidation where it's like, do I actually want to do this? Do I want to venture into the unknown and face myself in this situation? And I've always been a seeker. I always want to know what I don't know. And sometimes there's consequences in obtaining that knowledge. And the moment that comes to mind, so, and I think it's important to note that there are different levels of climbing, some that are really safe and inconsequential. And then there's like the higher echelon of like Conrad Anker and Jimmy Chin going to climb Maru. And I would put myself somewhere like in the middle of that pack the things that I was doing. So this one route out in the Ghost River wilderness area, which is essentially in between Banff and Calgary, but kind of tucked away in this valley. It's really beautiful. It's also really eerie. So it's called the Ghost River. 
right? So you're like, well, why does it have that name? And the lore is that there used to be battles fought in that valley. And there were a couple of First Nations that had a huge battle there. So tons of warriors died in that valley. And the way the wind whistles through the valley, it's quite eerie. And even though you're kind of in proximity to a couple places, it's rugged enough terrain and hard enough to access that you feel very, very alone. <clears throat> and so I was out there with a couple friends who were all new to climbing. And I was new to trad climbing. So I learned to trad climb in Squamish, but trad climbing in the Rockies is like a different beast. It's like a different sport altogether where you essentially don't want to fall. And I picked this route called Thor basically because it was accessible to us. It was only a 10A, but it said in the description something along the lines of uh, old school at its finest, hard to protect, bring your full bag of limestone tricks and know how to use them. And I'm like, okay, well, this is kind of like intimidating, but let's go for it. Uh, and I was with my buddy Quinn, who who was really, really green. Like basically I met him in the gym and dragged him outdoors. And so he was going to be the one holding the rope for me. And we were hungover, of course. And, and so I stood at the base of this route looking up at it. And sure enough, it's like, man, I don't see any gear for the first 10 meters or so or nothing I want to hang on. And I sat there and hummed and awed for so long and there's this moment of decision that almost makes itself. So similar to me moving out to the Rockies, it's like next thing you know, you're just doing the thing. You didn't consciously choose to do the thing. And I think that's a really magic moment. And so up I went and the route became progressively like scarier and intimidating as we got further up off the ground it was only four pitches and it took us a long ass time because I absolutely did not want to fall and Quinn would say to me later that he was watching me quest out on some of these pitches with no gear and he was just like terrified because if he knew if I fell I wouldn't be walking away from it and we'd have a real situation on our hands we didn't have any rope rescue skills. We didn't have like an evacuation plan. We had, we were completely ignorant to the dangers that we were dancing within. Eventually I got up to the last pitch and there was this moment where I just like went up and down this three meter section, just yo-yoing it because I did not want to commit. And I was so scared and so terrified and like probably didn't even have the skills to reverse from where I was. And it was also a moment of decision where it's like, all right, like up or down, like, what are you going to do? And it's that kind of blind faith of jumping into it and just going for it fully. That also creates a lot of positive reward. And so finally made it to the top. We repelled the route and we got to the bottom and we were just like dead silent. Like we, we didn't even, we were so exhausted uh, emotionally and physically, we just like couldn't even talk to each other. And we just like trudged down the hill. Finally, we got to the river, we got to the sun, and we began to become energized with what we had just accomplished. And it was like that moment of elation and psych of like survival and pushing past the point that I had never passed before. 
in terms of that mental, emotional, physical, and scale. Um, so that was that was a really special time in my life. Wow. The moment of pushing past that um, and committing, and, and what I'll point out as well is there's, there's different versions of fear. Like there's a difference between like fear and irrational fear and bodily information on the the consequence of what you're doing. And and that sounded like an example of the, the second where it is incredibly high consequence. Yeah, it, I that's transformative, but that's also very spicy. And and the the how often one does something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. What was the was the the narrative you drew back from it and knowing that it was transformative, was it the transformative and I'm definitely going to be better prepared next time or transformative and I'm hooked to throw myself into the abyss one more time. When I had completed that climb or actually when I was at the top, eventually when I got down, things were different. But when I was at the top, I was like, I am never climbing again, you know? And I, I, I wonder what was transformative. I think the aspect of perceived limitations Right. And it ties into this notion of being able to survive the unsurvivable in a way that is almost metaphysical. So it's like willing to eradicate the ego because we know that we're something greater than the ego. And so I'm getting a little abstract here, but essentially what I'm saying is there's examples of this throughout history where people have known that they are more than just a human body. They are a soul and a spirit that continues on through eternity. And with that, they're willing to sacrifice their body because they know the infinite game continues when this finite game ends. And so symbolically, this is kind of the same. It's like, okay, I'm going to blindly step into the abyss and know that somehow I will be caught. And the actual being caught in the application of like mountain sports is the letting go of the fear. So there's an element of trust there that is the transformation where it's like, I'm just going to surrender to my skills in the flow of this experience and know that it will be okay. Yeah. I I love that we've entered this. Yeah. This resonates a lot. So in fact, I think I've got the book right here. I don't know. Have you come across, um, Rob Schulte's Bone Games. This no, is like I think this came out in the the eighties. Basically, um, a dude was um, doing a solo scramble. I think that he had to do a rappel himself, like in the uh, Colorado Rockies, and uh, had a fall onto this ledge in the middle of nowhere, basically, and a, like a pretty hefty fall as well. And um, he weighing it up or at least how it's written he like he had no chance he was just going to be on that ledge um um until he starved or or bled out but um he managed to hike himself out and or free solo down the the hill but he that was a moment of his body knowing that the only chance of him surviving was him getting out of there and accessing far past his limits and um i think stephen kotler said this is one of the most impactful books I, i'm sure jamie wills read it like 
the um kind of he's probably the first to talk about flow which is a massive umbrella term there's probably a hundred different definitions of it but i think at a fundamental level it is tapping in to a source of potential other than our own and it is like pan cultural the way that people have created ceremonies in order to tap into that absolutely and that's a space that truly fascinates me because what is actually happening there and like you said there's all sorts of different definitions but i think we're opening up to the source of creation that created us individually so we're no longer like a human being having having this human experience we're just like spirit in form that is part of the creative process that's emerging moment to moment so it's mm. really stepping out of the way of the ego and being like okay i'm a part of this symphony of life creation right now what is the note that i am supposed to play in this masterpiece and just like being that note in that moment that frequency and vibration that is a part of it all Mm-hmm. That that's interesting because so what, what comes to my mind here is that there's there's different ways to look at this experience and that there is um the the neurobiological of this is what's happening to your brain when you're quote unquote in flow um there is the anthropological which is like how is this showed up among different cultures and how is that held how is it talked about and that kind of leads into almost like, do we want to call it mythology? Do we want to call it uh, basically the story of the the what or the the why behind that? Um, it sounds like, I mean, you mentioned you're a seeker. Um, it sounds like the why is, I guess, a key part of your practice around flow, of tapping it into the bigger picture. Yeah, I, I'm definitely a seeker. I, I want to know what's over every horizon, and that includes kind of mentally and philosophically and energetically. And I would say my, my criticism of myself is that it remains pretty philosophical, and I haven't quite found a way to regularly embody a flow state. And the places where I have found it mostly have been in playing basketball, so playing team sports, and then skiing. I think skiing, it makes it accessible because you're moving at a pace where there you can't be anywhere else. Like, I like to ski really fast, and it's like, okay, I have to be here 100%, or there's going to be consequences. And with climbing, in contrast, it's very slow and methodical, so that creates opportunity for my mind to go all over but when i'm in a position where there's consequences like the everything shrinks so i'm in this really tight bubble of awareness and that's interesting to think about of the focal point of attention and the sphere of awareness and often i think of finding that flow state is expanding the sphere of awareness into greater consciousness because then we're actually in tune with more information and then that kind of hones the precision of what is our actual note to play within the symphony 
Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Okay, I th- I th- I think I'm following. Is there any chance you can uh, put that into an example of uh, when you're on the wall, how that like shows up when you're climbing? How does that greatest affair of information being in flow? How does that show up compared to when you're not in flow? So with climbing, that's the challenging example that I'm trying to wrap my head around because it's more of a shrinking experience for me than an expansive one. And I probably haven't had that experience recently enough since I've developed this kind of model of consciousness to really try to test it in the field, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so there is there the, the important thing I think that I would like to reiterate is that we do have a sphere of awareness in through these intentional altering of our consciousness that brings us open to more information. So for example, in um, the space of plant medicine, it's like we're tapping into some people would say different parts of our psyche, right? Which is still sometimes beyond our sphere of awareness as we get into our subconscious and it's like, Oh, here's my blind spot. Here's my shadow side. This is the stuff I have to work on. These are the relationships I have to repair. And then the kind of complementary but slightly opposite perspective would be that we're actually expanding into different spaces of consciousness that can be viewed as realms or timelines or non-local information. So it's like, as we get out there, then what can we do with that? Like, how does that change our human experience? And perhaps it brings us into greater flow because we're no longer like rigidly clinging to the story of our ego that like is this like really frictiony um, perspective of the human experience when it's like, oh, actually I can loosen to that because there's so much more that I don't know. And if I don't know, maybe I can just surrender that and be in the beauty of the present moment. Yeah. Before we, I I do want to go, into um psychedelics and plant medicines and and also um like your area of expertise around transformation and 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 coaching but it's something i want to just slow down spend some time on um is what exactly is flow because i i I still often come um in conversation with people who say i don't know if i've ever been in flow and my take on this is that um it's very much on a scale and that if we're, if we're going to use the acronym STR of selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, richness, um, like those are all on, if we were to put those on a one to 10 scale, um, you can grade yourself on those at any time. And so like I, if I had to describe my intentional, practice i have like daily weekly monthly quarterly annual um practices ceremonies whatever you call them to be able to um i guess one optimize where i'm on on that scale at that any day and just in general what for people who who aren't sure if they're in flow like a scale is how good do i feel how good is my output right now I think is a safe way to describe that. Um, 
But generally, just on the day-to-day, the way I like to see the model is that we're we're just playing on one to five of the scale. The the upper level between five and ten or, or eight and ten, those are what we generally only get into in the most intense transformative experiences. How does that map on with like how you perceive flow? Because it means different things to different people. Yeah, I'm liking that because it essentially takes extraordinary situations or circumstances to get us into a flow state unless we are really well trained and practiced at getting into that space. So maybe a very skilled meditator lives in that space because they're actually not living in the story like I was suggesting. They're not constantly like painting a story of what's happening and being the narrator of their experience, but they're just being open. They're actually being in the seat of awareness to the things that are, that are just um, phenomenologically emerging from second to second. Can you give me those four categories again? No. Selflessness. Yeah. Timelessness. Yeah. Effortlessness and richness. Okay. Our culture is not set up, our lack of culture, our society is not set up to uh, hone those four things. No, not at all. But I guess a question on that is, do you, um, do you, and, and when you said that flow is, is very difficult to, to reach, do you perceive it as a threshold uh, rather than a scale of either you're in flow or you're, or you're, you're either out of flow most of the time unless you can breach the, the threshold? I would say in my experience, yes. But as we're having this conversation and you're describing your your model and interpretation of it, I could see how it really is a spectrum in the experience of flow. And it is about being present and not like tracking other things. And it's like not thinking about what I'm saying. It's just saying the thing that wants to come through. Mm-hmm. And to to live there, I think takes concerted effort. Absolutely. Yeah. And it it sounds like most of your experience or the way you've been thinking about it is in the, the higher ranges is in whether that is through intense transformative outdoors, uh, uh, intense experiences outdoors, like what you, what you described earlier and, um, or, uh, through ceremony, um, I guess, could you tell us a little bit more about how you found yourself in that space? How you, how you came to that space? The ceremonial space? Yeah. I have always kind of experimented with psychedelics to lesser degrees and intentions. And, um, from using them recreationally, I finally found the space where I could be more intentional and sit by a river, uh, by myself and take however many grams of mushrooms and to go inward and to have that ex- um, that introspection, but also that expansion. I think in that space, I found the connection with the natural world where I could really like tune in to a tree and its sentience and how it felt. So kind of like the qualia of experience of being a tree because there truly is no separation 
and that's kind of what where flow brings us to as well it's to see that there is no separation in that constant emergence of consciousness and so after having those kind of solo experiences i found my way into a community uh that's called fit for service that's run by aubrey marcus and that's where I met Eric Godsey and all the other coaches, Kyle Kingsbury, Caitlin Howe. And that was completely transformative those two years, being a part of that program in 2019 and 2020. And I found a place of belonging, a loving, accepting community of like-minded individuals that really wanted to push themselves in the realms of personal development and growth. And it's also a community that's pretty fond of the ceremony space. And we would have self-directed ceremonies that are definitely not part of the program because they don't actually like do that for their participants. But we would get together with closer friends within the community and uh, drop in in a very intentional way. And it's not like it's not partying. It's we're going to go into this space and see what we could discover about ourselves and, and consciousness uh, in general. And so that was really powerful. I would say I had awakening moments of really like expansive awareness of greater consciousness and be like, whoa, there is like there's something here. You know, there is an intelligence here that I am a part of. Eventually, I found my way into more um, indigenous ceremonies, so peyote ceremonies. Uh, and then most recently at a retreat I ran, I was a part of a psilocybin ceremony done in the Mazatec tradition, which is a Mexican tradition. And what I'm noticing in the difference between these indigenous ceremonies and the self-organized ceremonies is that it's a richer space there is like a level of depth because the tradition is steeped in time that gets us to different layers of consciousness. And with that, there's different layers of healing and transformation that occur. And those ceremonies are usually done in some level of discomfort, whether that's staying up all night or like being on your knees in prayer position in the Native American church, for example, the peyote ceremony. There's an element of sacrifice that is really important because it's a piece of reciprocity, reciprocity that allows us to get more out of it. It's just like going in the backcountry, right? The more you give to the experience, the more you're going to get out of it. And that's a law that exists everywhere throughout the natural world and the human experience and consciousness itself. Yeah. I, I, I... So it's something I, I I think about a lot is that everyone worships whether they whether they are conscious of it or not. And and as I mentioned before we hit record, a lot of people uh, are doing that through their relationship with the outdoors. But I think ceremony and and working with plant medicines is a, a, a an arena that's actually pretty similar to the arena of testing yourself outdoors and you mentioned you mentioned the sacrifice that goes into it i mean there's there's risks that goes into it as well in terms of uh it's it's an adventure of your psyche for sure um yeah yeah tell me tell me more about how you think fear and risk 
show up in ceremony? It really is a matter of going into the unknown. So that is um, fear-inducing. And then the question is, is there actual risk here? You know, you kind of touched earlier on perceived risk versus actual risk, right? So the fear of falling versus the fear of falling with consequence. And so as we go into these different medicine spaces, there's very, very rarely any chance of physiological harm. Though there is a risk of psychological harm, we're opening up to vast amounts of information that isn't a hallucination. I would say that this information is always there. We are just like turning the dials in our receptor that allows us to perceive it. And so if we take on too much information at once, it's like uh, a computer, you know, we, we could overload ourselves and crash. And so if we expose ourselves to something that we're not ready for on the other end of that ceremony, it might take a long time to recover. And there are certainly instances where people have not recovered, where they've forever been changed for the worse. And so holding that awareness is super important without creating that like nocebo effect where we're actually calling in the negative outcome. And I would say, again, it's like really, really rare that somebody has a negative outcome, but the people who are really pushing the boundaries, for example, Chris Beige, who you probably saw speak at last week's conference, he was really testing those boundaries and he was having repercussions on the mental, uh, physical, emotional, and spiritual body, right? So it depends like how far people want to go into the abyss. And then we consider the actual medicine men and shamans of the world. They've put themselves in that space where there is actual risk, not just perceived risk. So it is a spectrum. I, I really like the model of, you, you said receptor, and the, the model of our consciousness being a receptor of information and describing um, the experience of ceremony, the psychedelic experience, of being exposed to a whole lot of information. And there's a, there's a book called, I think it's called the 50 bit problem or something, which actually breaks down the scientific case of that. Our conscious mind can only perceive 20, 50 bits um, at any time, but our brain is actually processing a hundred times that or something. Um, and in many ways the psychedelic experience is opening that up and and actually the benefits that is coming out i think at the conference at spirit plant medicine conference last weekend uh, one of the doctors was speaking to the benefits of neurogenesis and the act of opening yourself up to that information or encouraging your brain to explore different neural pathways is incredibly transformative but not without risks. You you mentioned Chris Beige is someone who wrote, I'll, I'll reference whatever book. What's the book called that he, he put out? Diamonds in Heaven? It's called LSD and the Mind of the Universe. And the subtitle is Diamonds from Heaven. I um I haven't read the book. I, I Based on the question you asked, you, you read it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. 
Yeah, and so uh, I could address the, the first thing you said after I speak about Chris Bache, if you want. He did 73 heroic doses of LSD, so 500 micrograms, over the course of 20 years. So he went into a very intentional set and setting where his wife was the space holder every time. And his protocols were essentially the same, so he could access a similar point in his experience. And it became this continuum over 20 years where he developed a relationship with an intelligence that he calls the beloved, his beloved. And his intention was to develop his philosophical model of the cosmos. And so he was a true explorer as he was venturing into the unknown, right? Pushing the map into greater territory. And he came back with some information that was a little bit unnerving and kind of about the trajectory of humanity. And I think from even from that, that like philosophical, mystical perspective, it actually maps onto some of the more pragmatic trends that we're seeing at the time in terms of like ecological decline and the unsustainable resource and energy extraction, right? And so all of that, whether you look at the mystical model or the, the science that we're living and experiencing and witnessing, it's coming to a culmination point which could be a point of transformation where we then change our ways, we change our understanding of the human experience, and we start to be more responsible humans, uh, recognize the web of life that we're a part of, and live in a more harmonious way. And it seems like that's like the only thing we, that's the only option, is to come into that sense of awareness and harmony. And alternatively, there's going to be repercussions. And unfortunately, it seems like those repercussions are going to be needed before we actually have the wisdom to transform. And then you said you were going to talk about what I mentioned before that. What was that again? Yeah, so it's the awareness of information. So thought- we... The the reason why we not we might not perceive that like that we are a part of the web of life interconnected tall things is because we have a limited capacity to uh, of perception. So there's a thing called the biological moonbelt, which essentially reduces the amount of information that we are attuned to in any given moment because it is a fitness selection for survival. Right. So we don't need to see all like the, the fractals and, and shapes and, and colors because we need to know where the food is and where the mates are so we can survive. Right. So the we only process 120 bits of information per second, but our retinas are actually picking up like millions of bits of information. So that's how narrow our perceptual reality is. And it is a far cry from actual reality. So then we do anything to alter our state of consciousness, whether it's pushing ourselves in the outdoors or taking three grams of mushrooms or dancing or drumming or breathwork. There's many different avenues. Some are less risky than others, but suddenly we're open up to more information. Again, that can be internally in our own personal psyche or that can be externally in the whole field of consciousness. Yeah, you you explained that well. And and I want to pick up on what you mentioned about it uh, being many ways to access it and that um, uh, running an ultra marathon, doing a Vipassana retreat, um, um, 
doing a um an epic in the in the backcountry um dancing for eight hours or uh taking three grams of mushrooms you're accessing that exact same state or not not exact same the same state just through different ways of getting there and there's different flavors to that level of consciousness but ultimately you're getting it would you agree with that yeah um, I would say that the through line is that we are altering our states of consciousness. I would say the medium for altering it is essentially like the map that you're you're pulling out. And so you're like, I'm going to go to this part of your map by doing this thing. And so then everything becomes quite methodical once we start to familiarize where we're trying to get to and how to get there. So again, bringing in the idea of these indigenous ceremonies, they are so meticulously orchestrated with protocols <clears throat> that they do the same thing every time to get to the same place, right? The way people walk around the fire, the way people interact with the fire, the way people sit, the way people sing, the way people speak, the different uh, rituals within the ceremony, and that's a good point of differentiation. A true ceremony consists of many different rituals, which makes the experience richer, right? Versus maybe like a, uh, a lesser aware person will just be like, yeah, we're just going to in a circle and eat a bunch of mushrooms and put on a playlist. You know, the music in these spaces is really important because it's the music that actually guides us to different spaces in consciousness. So, yeah, actually being a true cartographer in exploring consciousness is really important and helpful and is where we actually make progress. Sure. Yeah, and I, I um, what comes up as you say that is I, I imagine all these practices to throw us into that altered state of consciousness is um, I, I like to use the term shooting for the moon in that I don't always enter that the state of flow of richness of information, but it's a, an attempt to enter that space. And, and the role of rituals in that is to have more reliable access to those states. Would you say? Yeah. It's kind of like fine tuning the coordinates that you're going to. It's like putting in extra decimal points to the coordinates. And so, yeah, if you have like your morning meditation routine, like maybe it consists of lighting incense and maybe doing like five minutes of body movement and then doing like some type of uh, visual energetic clearing and then finally dropping into that space where we're going to try to find stillness in the mind because that is an altered state of consciousness. But without those protocols leading up to it, if you're just like sitting down and doing the thing, then you're not actually priming body to get the result you want yeah and 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 you mentioned you've mentioned a few times i guess the difference between uh just uh say taking a uh mushrooms with a group of friends in a ritual ceremony and and is the only difference the only it's the only difference the absence of a ritual or speak a little bit more about the difference between uh, Let's just say like new age practice versus time bound lineage and tradition. I think it is this 
quick fix that we want in our society or we just want that relief or that experience or the reward without investing anything into it. So a good contrast would be the Sundance ceremony, First Nation Sundance ceremony, where people deprive themselves of food and water and sleep to a certain extent and dance around a tree for four days straight. And it's in that, that's their devotion, that's their sacrifice in order to manifest their prayer. So it is this matter of devotion, and that's very different than being like, okay, hey guys, come to my place and we're going to have a four-hour journey with sit inside them. You know, so it's really a, that idea of devotion and, and reciprocity. And you mentioned worship earlier, right? It's like, what are we worshiping? And it doesn't have to, if people are turned off by the idea of spirit or God, then we could be worshiping our higher self, like the best version of ourself. I'm going to pray to the best version of myself that knows what I should be doing every moment to get to that place of being the best version of myself. And so if we if we think about the outdoors as well, like we could mindlessly go uh, hop on the chairlift without any real awareness of what we're doing, or we could go in the backcountry, practice gratitude, introduce ourselves to the mountain, be aware of the First Nation territory that we're on, practice that communion with the natural world just from a place of like gratitude and paying attention. Right. So there's different levels of worship, but it is about involvement and kind of slowing down, taking our time and putting in the energetic effort. Yeah, it sounds like what I'm hearing is that um, it doesn't necessarily matter the specific details of who or what it is that you're worshiping, as long as there's an element of goodness truth and beauty to it it's more the act of intentionally placing devotion to something which is greater than yourself which is powerful was definitely yeah recognizing that we are part of something that exists beyond our ego it's not just about me and it's interesting that you speak about uh, goodness, truth, and beauty, because it's something I'm studying as of as of late, because it really piqued my interest, this Platonian philosophy that we orient ourselves to what we think is good, true, and beautiful. And uh, so the, the juxtaposition I'm presenting between, like, simple ceremony and complex ceremony and, like, um, resort skiing and backcountry skiing, like, the... the my preference is dependent on what I subjectively perceive to be more good, true, and beautiful, but that is entirely subjective, right? So then it seems like we're willing to um, dismiss other people's perception of what is good, true, and beautiful, and that creates like this conflict between people. And so what I'm really curious about is finding the objectivity in what is good, true, and beautiful. And I think that comes from the shared felt experience. So it's like you and I go into the backcountry and we have this, like maybe it's an overnight trip. And so we, there's a little bit of effort involved and a little bit of discomfort. And we get to that place of resonance with one another where our energies actually like co-regulate 
and then it's also co-regulated with the eco field of the natural space that we're in. And then it's like, oh, boom, we just found harmony. We just found something that is a shared experience of what is good, true, and beautiful. I'm curious to learn how what we've spoken about comes up um, in your your area of expertise around coaching. How do you deal with or handle what we're we're talking about when you're working with clients? Admittedly, a lot of my work has come online, and so that creates a obstacle to find that resonance, that shared felt experience. And there are moments that come up, like even virtually, like we could sit here and attune to each other just through intention and opening to that and perhaps like dropping out of our mind and, and into our heart space. So there have been moments of um, shared emotion, you know, with clients via the screen. And what I would absolutely prefer to do is bring them out in nature. Just be like, let's sit here, let's slow down, let's find a natural rhythm of life and existence as we get influenced by these trees and this river and this land. And I was able to have an experience of that just a couple of weeks ago when I ran that retreat I mentioned. So uh, a medicine man came from Mexico and was able to take care of the ceremony and then everything around the ceremony was my responsibility to provide this experience for these people. And it was out on my friend's land at Henderson Lake and it's remote and it's away from the noise and the distraction and the pace of regular society. And with that, we did different nature connection practices, different ceremonies around the fire and also sit spots. So sit spots are a process of, basically an open awareness meditation where you are watching the reflection, observing the reflection of the natural world as it relates to our thoughts. So there's an interface between the inner and outer world. And it's like, okay, I'm thinking about something challenging right now. How does the outer environment reflect that? Maybe the wind picks up, maybe there's the, the water is choppy. Okay, and then I regulate that how does my perception change? Does the environment actually change or does my perception change? Maybe suddenly there's an eagle that swoops in or a butterfly that goes by, right? And so there is a relationship there and it is a matter of co-regulating and being in tune with that relation, with that, yeah, with that relationship all the time. Yeah, it's funny. Sit, sit spotting has come up a, a number of times through through uh, the the guests that I've I've spoken to, and I I really like the way that you described it in terms of the the co regulation, or it almost sounds like using there's an element of using what we observe in the environment around us while we're engaging in sit spotting to better understand what our inner experience is. For me, the the process that I've got out of uh, a sit sots practice, and and for me, I've come from a place of being radically skeptic, um, of not believing anything that the scientific method could, could improve. And it, it was psychedelics that opened me up to 
um, being open to, 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 to the more than what can be explained. And, um, I almost split, um, split, um, the inter, I, I call it cultivating intimacy with the more than human world. So, so the plant life, the animal life, everything around you. And, it feels like there's a flow state you can access there as well, but it's a very soft flow state for sure. And it's like a, almost a completely different mode to access. Yeah. It's, it's a meditative mode. It's a gentle mode, uh, like you're suggesting. Um, and because of our rigid Western egos, sometimes we need the fireworks to get us out there. We need the intensity right? We need the exposure therapy or the three grams of mushrooms. However, I would say that through more continuous exposure to nature, it just happens naturally. Like you actually don't need anything. So the, the, rather than adding to the equation, it's a matter of taking away from the equation. So the vision quest is a good example where people go out in the, up on the mountain as the saying goes whether it's a mountain or not, and they sit in a circle uh, that is quite small and, and they don't leave it for four days. And so they're there without food and without water. And they're just sitting there alone with themselves, their thoughts in the environment as a tool of reflection. So there's a level of intensity to that as well, but you could just go for a walk in the woods for an hour and compare this state of being at the beginning versus the state of being at the end. And it's, there's definitely going to be a difference, like a quantifiable difference. Yeah. And, or even just the act of intentionally paying attention to how you feel at the start and, and how the end is, is transformative. I, I think of um, the, like the way I gauge progress in my uh, stillness practice is um, that I have better language to describe what's going on inside me, you know, and, and, and for so many people, there's zero attention that is paid to how they're actually feeling. And again, like that, that's kind of what's been ingrained in the dominant culture. Definitely. The, so the point of attention within the field of awareness but people are usually stuck at the point of attention, which is a story, which is like the I'm hungry or I'm sad, completely identifying with a single aspect of the human experience rather than recognize like, oh, part of me is experiencing sadness in this, but I'm not going to identify as that thing because my field of awareness is actually much greater to recognize that there's other things happening in my experience. And this is just like a passing moment. And so turning that that focal point inward like you do in your practice is super important. Like it's a starting point for people. Just pay attention. Pay attention. And that comes in minimizing distraction. Well, Kyle, we're coming to, towards time here, and we've spoken about a lot. We've spoken about risk, the backcountry, how that shows up and kind of inner exploration in different modes as well. I'm curious on the on the subject of the the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors or from adventure. Uh, is there anything else that's alive for you? Just this this idea that there is a there there, 
And so it's like that, that's like an abstract funny statement, something like Eric Gazi says, there is something beyond our normal realm of perception. And it's important that people get there. And it doesn't matter how they get there, but it really opens us up to the full magic, wonder, and beauty of the human experience. Because as we interact with this intelligence, we can see the way it reflects our experience to us and the way our perception of reality influences reality. And so we can take greater control of our life in developing that relationship and following the cues of the natural world to guide us along our way. The byproduct of that is that we do see the interconnection of things. And maybe then we start respecting nature a little bit more. We start respecting our brothers and sisters a little bit more. And we come into a more harmonious way of being. And this is like fairly critical as we move forward as a collective. And so, yeah, I would say to people, get outside and look for that thing that is greater than yourself. Yeah, there is a there there. And and that, would you say, kind of aligns with that which is good, true, and beautiful as well in terms of the there that's there? Once you recognize there's a there there, everything becomes more good, true, and beautiful. And it's like a self-feeding cycle where more good, truth, and beauty beauty comes into your experience to evolve your state of consciousness, which then just grows with more good truth and beauty over and over and over again to infinity. And, and that resonates with me because I'm a, I, I'm also a seeker. Uh, and, and that um, it, it's funny. I um, didn't grow up with, with any religion. Um, and I must have been 18 uh, in, in my freshman year of university, got chatting to some youth pastor who invited me to a church service and, and had an like unbelievable spiritual experience. And um, I mean, I moved away from that and, and found later found, or the narrative I draw from that is that that was like the, a spiritual cup in me got, got, was waiting to be filled my entire life. And I know that, that the seeker is part of me that I discovered that day, or I didn't actually discover it that day. It wasn't until I found other modes outside of, of Christianity, which is a mode of worshiping to access that, um, to, um, to find those spaces. But when you say that there's a there, there, do you think people who aren't seekers, uh, haven't tapped into that or how do you map on because there are many people who just like aren't as interested in exploring or devoting the amount of time and energy that we put into exploring the there that's there it doesn't take that much time though but there is this idea that you have to believe in magic to experience magic right so we do have to get out of the reductionary materialist mindset if this is just like a a dead material mechanical experience then that i'm going to be given evidence to support that but if it's like okay let's run the experiment am i a part of something greater than myself instantly like i would say like pretty damn quickly you're going to be like oh wow like things are happening and that can be found in 
the beauty of a sunset. You know, those who can't experience beauty in a sunset really don't know the divine. And it's all around us. It could be found in a loved one. It could be found in our brothers or sisters or kids or mothers or fathers. Like being like, holy shit, this is like a hyper object of infinite complexity. And I have no idea what it's going to do next. And this is so incredibly fascinating. And that is the complexity of the tapestry of life that I'm a part of. And if that's not incredible, like what is? You're not going to find something more incredible in your phone, I assure you. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it because the you have to believe in magic to believe that magic is real. I mean, the, the definition of magic is interesting there, but something that I hold firmly is that um, if you don't believe in the power of the imagination, that's like a massive self-limiting belief. It's funny, I, I actually discovered psychedelics through wanting to become more productive and, and microdosing came up as, a, as an option there before I even like blew the doors of perception open. But so much of personal development or just becoming a more effective human is through the imaginal realm. And if you're not open to that, you're like really selling yourself short in terms of your developmental potential. Exactly. If, if you want to be somewhere else, you have to first imagine being somewhere else before you could actually be there well carl this has been great i I, i've got an awful lot from exploring this with you where can people find more of you people can find me on instagram at kyle underscore dow d-o-w or you can check out my website connectionintegration.com you can find my email on there and yeah i look forward to connecting with people and really it is for me about expanding consciousness and i do that in my own practice and i and i do that as i support people through their their practices and bring them into these different ceremonial spaces which includes a simple walk in nature sure and so so speak a little bit more about the the services and support that you offer with connection integration i do preparation and integration coaching around different ceremonial experiences so that could be psychedelic or non-psychedelic And I also help people with emotional and spiritual wellness. So general life coaching that focuses on those two realms, because I think, as you know, by now, I feel that as we tap deeper into that spiritual awareness, then life really changes for the better. Beautiful. Well, I'll include links to Instagram and your website uh, in the show notes from there. So Kyle, thank you so much for this. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Mountain Whispers. As I always say, there's an awful lot of really, really great listening content out there. So it means a lot they chose this. I was re-listening to the conversation I had with Kyle because it was recorded at the end of uh, 2022. And in particular, the, the discussion we were having about whether flow states are a binary or on a gradient. And as I think about it more, I feel like, yes, there, there's a very much a threshold that you have to cross in order to access a state of flow. But there is also a, a, a gradient. You can be in flow, but less in flow than uh, the state where things were truly effortlessness, truly rich. And then also when we were talking about the similarities between flow in the 